The following podcast is a recording from the sermon ministry of Faithway Baptist Church in Leesburg, Virginia. Our prayer is that this message will be used by God to help you in your daily walk with Him. Well, Isaiah 63 in your Bibles this morning is our text, Isaiah 63. There's an old song that uh, is in our hymn book that we, I don't think we've ever sang here at Faithway before. It's called, Christ Returneth, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Amen. We used to sing that in my church growing up around Easter time. And I just love the, um, the cadence and the message of that song. It may be at morn when the day is awakening. We don't know when Jesus will return. He could come back today. He could come back tomorrow. Um, my wife probably hopes he comes back before the baby's born. But, you know, he could come back at any time. And uh, even so come Lord Jesus, we believe at any moment he could make his appearance. And, and that is what the Bible calls the blessed hope. That's what allows us as Christians to look at the news and to see the things that are going on in the world, experience tragedies in our life, and yet even though we go through those difficult moments, we still have what we call the blessed hope, knowing that God will return one day to make all the wrongs right, that everything in this world that is upside down will be turned right side up when Jesus returns. And we have so much to look forward to. But in Isaiah chapter 63 today, we're going to see another side to the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible tells us here in Isaiah chapter 63, when Jesus returns, for those who know Christ, it's going to be a wonderful day. But for those who do not know Christ, it's going to be a time of great sorrow, of great agony, and great pain. Before we get there, I want to read a passage of Scripture that is, is a mirror to Isaiah 53, but it's actually found in the last book of the Bible. It's found in the book of Revelation. I think we have the words on the screen there for you. The Apostle John said he saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. Who's the one that sat on the horse? It's none other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, the Bible tells us there in Revelation chapter 19 that when Jesus Christ returns, his vesture, it's an old English word for an outer cloak, his vesture would be dipped, would be stained with blood. Well, as I read that, I, I questioned whose blood is it? Right? What, what do you mean it's stained with blood? And how did it get stained? Well, those are the questions that are answered in Isaiah chapter 63. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, Isaiah chapter 63 and verse number 1, God's word says, Who is this that cometh from Eden, Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This is that glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, verse number one tells us a little bit of, there's a little geographical lesson there. I think we have a map up on the screen for you. Edom is the area of Israel. So this is modern day Israel and the Dead Sea. You can see they kind of, uh, the bottom part of the Dead Sea 
um, is really shallow now and they've channeled it and they're doing some different hydroelectric things. It's really cool what they're doing there. Um, but the Dead Sea used to be that entire area was filled with water. And Basra, the Bible talks about that. That's modern-day Basra. It's the middle thumbtack there. And the Petra, we've talked about Petra before. Petra is the place where in the final days where the people of Israel are going to run to, they're going to hide to, running from the Antichrist, they're going to go to the hills of Petra. So this is Edom is modern-day Jordan, just to the east of Israel. And the Bible says there in verse number one, who is this person that is going to come from Basra with his, his garments that are going to be red? Edom is the land of red. And, and the Bible says Basra there, it's a, a modern Jordanian city, city there. It, it means sheepfold or fortress. So there's a little bit of a play on words there in the Hebrew. But Isaiah says that this person, he asked the question, who is it? This person is going to return to Jerusalem from Basra. Now, as I mentioned, it's one of the ancient cities of the Edomites, very close to Petra. And the only way for really for you to go to Pet, or go, go from Basra to Jerusalem, the easiest way is to go up the Jericho Road, kind of following that arrow that is there. So the Bible says in the end times, Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to gather his people in Petra that have been hiding from the Antichrist. And from the, that area, that region of the world, he's going to make his march up to Jerusalem. So we believe that at the end of the tribulation period, that the Bible tells us in Revelation and other places, that seven years upon the earth will see God's wrath. The Antichrist is going to be revealed. The Jewish people during this time period will be greatly persecuted. The Antichrist is going to be a friend of the Jews for the first three and a half years. But the Bible tells us that in the middle of the tribulation, he is going to offer on the altar in the temple, he's going to offer a pig is going to be the sacrifice. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish people, they do not eat pigs, right? Pork is kind of forbidden under kosher law. And so for the Antichrist to slaughter a pig in their holy temple, that is called the abomination of the desolation. And at that moment, the Jews are going to realize the Antichrist is not their friend. And so the Bible says they're going to flee to the mountains. That's what Jesus said. They're going to cross the border. They're going to leave Jerusalem and they're going to go hide in modern day Jordan. They're going to go to Petra. They're going to go to Basra. And when Jesus Christ returns, I believe, first of all, Acts chapter 1 says Jesus will return in the air. Then he's going to go to Jordan. He's going to rescue the Jews that are hiding. And he's going to march them up the Jericho Road to Jerusalem. And then Zechariah chapter 14 tells us something amazing. When Jesus finally gets right outside the city walls of Jerusalem, he's going to stop on the Mount of Olives. And there's going to be an earthquake and the Mount of Olives is going to split in half. It's going to be an amazing day when Jesus Christ returns. But the Bible says there in verse number one, if you have your, your text in front of you, it says that who is he that is traveling in the greatness of his strength? That, that literally means in the Hebrew, it means to travel stately. It's the idea of a conquering king entering into his city with his head thrown back high, held up high, and he is walking in and there is, he's riding in and there is no doubt who is the conquering hero. So that's the picture there. Who is this person traveling in a stately manner? Well, the answer to that question is the end of that verse. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Who do you know in the Bible that is mighty to save? Can Phil save you? Can I save you? Can Abraham save you? No, there is no one in the Bible that is able to save other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
And so there is no doubt in our mind, the person that is going to be making this journey, traveling in a stately manner up the road from Basra to Jerusalem, is none other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Look at verse number two. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Now, the word wine fat there means a wine press. And in ancient Israel, here's actually a picture of one from outside of the city of Jerusalem. This is what the ancient wine press would look like. They would gather the grapes during the harvest, and they would, I know it's hard to see with the shadows, but at the very end there, the, the, the grapes would be crushed by feet. And so people would just jump in there. Hopefully they washed their feet before they did so, but they would jump in and they would squash all the grapes. The juice would run down that channel, and at the very bottom there, that's where the, the grape juice would be collected, and then they would use that. They'd fill up different containers. But that's an ancient wine press or a wine vat that the Bible talks about here. And if you were to imagine, you know, if you were to jump into one of those, you would take off your outer, uh, your outer tunic, and then you would be with your white underclothes there is what the Bible, in Bible days they would have in their robes. And as you're jumping around in that wine press, there's no doubt in my mind that your clothes are going to get a little stained. They're going to get a little dirty. And so the idea here in verse number two is that the person who is making this journey, and we establish that it's Jesus Christ after he returns, his clothes are going to be stained not with grape juice. Look at verse three. Wherefore art thou, I'm sorry, this verse, I have trodden the wine press alone. And thy people, there was none with me, and I will tread them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. He says there in verse 3, I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. Now that's a very, um, it's not a popular message when it comes to talking about God. You know, the message people want to hear about God is God is love. And, and, and certainly God is a God of love. But you understand, there has to be another side to God. A God who loves cannot love sin. He's holy, right? So God who is holy has to hate sin. And the Bible says there, verse 3, God says, I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. The word fury there means heat, rage, hot displeasure. It's a, a wrath and indignation. And before you get too hard on, you say, well, why is God an angry God? I thought God was a God of love. Yes, God is a God of love, but he also is an anger, angry God. But I want you to understand the anger of God is not like our anger. I believe it's very difficult for us to understand God's anger or God's wrath because we often confuse it with our own anger. When you and I get angry, we often get angry for the wrong reasons. The problem is the emotion of anger is mixed in with the other emotions that we have in our life, whether it's jealousy, something else. They kind of get mixed in between, and our anger is almost never righteous anger. In fact, when God gets angry, as I said, it always is righteous. In Romans chapter 1, verse number 18, the Bible says the wrath of God, the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifested in them for God has showed it unto them. So the wrath of God is, is revealed or is going to be revealed from heaven because even though God has shown his love and his grace and his mercy to the world, they've rejected him. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 5, it says, But after thy hardness and impertinent heart, treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of righteousness, righteous judgment of God. Now you say, well, is it possible to be angry and not sin? Yes, it's possible, but very difficult. Ephesians 4, 26, the apostle Paul said, Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. 
But Paul also understood that that's a very hard thing to do because of the emotions that are involved in the human heart. So just five verses later in Ephesians 4.31, Paul said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. In other words, he's saying, look, you, there is such thing as righteous anger, but you're probably never going to get there. So just don't get angry. That's the best thing. By the way, if you find yourself today being an angry person, the Bible does give you hope. There is help from God's word. You don't have to be a slave to anger. I know that can be a besetting sin for some of us. And if you find yourself often flying off the handle and getting upset when things don't go right, or yelling at the car in front of you that's going really slow, or you know what I'm talking about, right? If you find yourself getting angry, there is hope and there is help in the Word of God. But, but in our situation, in our circumstance, it is possible to have righteous anger, because God did, but other things get mixed into our wrath. Our anger can go beyond what is proper. In the Old Testament, Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were two of the boys, Simon and Levi. Um, they received a curse from their father, Jacob, because their anger went too far. Their sister Dinah had been violated. And as a result of that, they got really upset, as I would be, and I'm sure you would be as well, if that happened to your sister. And so they decided to take vengeance themselves. And they went into the city, and instead of confronting the person that violated their sister, they wiped out the entire village. And Jacob said, well, because of that, you're going to be cursed. And so they, they incurred the wrath of God because their anger took them too far. James, the book of James tells us that man's anger does not produce things that are pleasing to God. In James 1.19, it says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man, get this, be swift to hear. That means quick to listen, slow to speak, and even slower to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where... You hear the story for the first time, and you get all worked up, and then you realize, wait, there's two sides to every story, and, and you didn't have all the details, and you made a rash judgment, a rash decision, and you look back, and you're like, man, I wish I could take that back. That's happened to me multiple times in my life. Um, during the days, the final days of Denver's old Stapleton Airport, there was a crowded flight that was canceled. I believe, Jay, it was a United Airlines flight. I can't, I don't know for sure, but uh, we'll say it is United. No, no, we won't, we'll, we'll bring them in. But uh, a single, uh, the, the entire plane, as a result of this cancellation, um, was in the long line at the overcrowded desk there, and there was one agent that was working that desk trying to accommodate all of those travelers. If you're a frequent traveler, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Well, the huge line, the entire plane is in this line, and finally, in frustration, an angry passenger pushed his way to the front of the desk. He slapped his ticket down on the counter, and he said, I have to be on this flight, and I have to be in first class. The agent replied, you know, sir, I'm sorry. I'm trying to help all of these other customers who are here in front of you. I'd be happy to try to help you, but I need to get to these folks first. And when it's your turn, I'm sure we'll be able to work something out, right? She was doing the best she could to help in that situation. Well, the passenger was not impressed. And so he asked loudly so all the passengers around him could hear, Do you have any idea who I am? Without hesitating, the gate agent smiled and she picked up her, her telephone, got on the public address system. She said, May I have your attention, please? She said, we have a passenger here at the gate who does not know who he is. If anybody can help, please come to the gate. Well, you can imagine what the folks around uh, that guy were thinking, what they were doing. They were laughing at him, right? So this guy's humiliated, and everyone is laughing at him. He storms off and disappears. Now, you know, I'm sure they were upset because they missed their plane, but they were no longer angry at the airline, right? They were laughing at this situation. 
you and I, we've probably made a fool of ourselves, maybe not to that degree before, but we've opened our mouth and we've said things before we shouldn't have said them. And so let me go back and say today, God is righteous in his anger, but most of the time, 99.99% of the time, we are not. That's why Proverbs 14, 29 says, he that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty in spirit exalteth folly. In other words, you're going to be foolish if you rush to decisions and rush to make judgment calls. So let's be very careful in our lives as Christians that we give God the opportunity to work on our heart and not get angry when opportunities arise. But one day, here in our text, verse 3, God is going to get angry. And God's anger is not going to be a mistake. And if God is angry with you, he will be angry for all of the right reasons. And my friend, if his anger is turned towards you, you're in trouble. God's wrath is going to be terrible. It's ultimately the reason why someone will spend eternity separated from God. Instead of being in heaven, they'll be in the lake of fire for all of eternity. No one wants that. But Jesus, you realize Jesus spoke about heaven and he spoke about hell as well. Jesus talked about that. He said, but I say unto you, I, I tell you, I know not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. My friend, Verse 3 says, there is coming a day when the wrath of God, the anger of God, will be poured out upon the earth. But there is a way to avoid God's anger. The secret to, to take away God being angry with you is to do something about the reason he is angry with that, with, at you. And the reason that his anger is channeled towards you is because of your sin. And the only way that God's wrath can be appeased is through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says, but God commendeth or demonstrated his love toward us. If you were to demonstrate your love towards someone else, what would you do for them? Maybe you would buy them a gift. Maybe you would write them a note. Maybe you would just give them a hug and let them know how much you love them. God demonstrated his love towards you and me, and he wanted to show you how much he loved you, that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then it says in Romans 5, 9, much more than being justified by his blood. That means being made right with God by his blood. We are saved from the wrath through him. You understand, God's anger will be channeled rightly one day against the sin in this world. But you can be saved from the wrath of God if you come to a place where you accept Christ's death for your sins. And if you do that, you move from being in a position of being an enemy of God to now being called a friend of God. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation doesn't come through me. It doesn't come through Phil. It doesn't come through Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Salvation only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice there in verse number 3, it goes on to describe what this day will be like. It says, And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Now, I, want, I put these three words up on the screen for you this morning because I wanted you to see them kind of in their, in their totality. The latter part of verse number three is three words. The word there, blood. Sometimes it refers to juice of grapes, but most of the time in the Bible, it refers to blood or gore. For example, um, when Jezebel fell out the window and the, blood, the dogs came in and licked up her blood, that, that's the same picture, the same word, all right? Sprinkled means to spurt or to splatter, and then stain means to defile, to pollute. If we were to rate this, you know, for television, this would be an R-rated movie, right? It's very for gore, for violence. And I want you to understand, when Jesus returns, his robe is not going to be stained with grape juice. But the Bible says it will be stained by the blood of his enemies that he's crushed beneath his feet. Why? Because of verse number four. 
The day of vengeance is mine is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. The day of vengeance. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, we read this a couple of weeks ago. Would you turn back if you have your Bibles to Isaiah 61? Remember, as we were looking at this early in January, I told you that Jesus showed up in Nazareth, and as he started his earthly ministry, he opened up the scroll of Isaiah, and he read chapter 61, verse number 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them which were bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Jesus stopped right there. He folded the scroll, rolled the scroll back up and gave it to the attendant and he walked out. And everybody in that synagogue that day knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. He didn't finish verse number two. The end of verse number two says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. You see, the reason Jesus didn't finish verse number two is because Christ came as the Messiah the first time to take away the sins of the world. This is what our Jewish brothers, they've missed throughout the centuries, right? They're looking for a political Messiah that would save them from Rome. They're looking for a political Messiah that would deliver them from Babylon, that would deliver them from their enemies. And God says, no, the first time the Messiah comes, he came to save his people from their sin. But the second time that Jesus comes, he's going to fulfill the end of chapter 61 and verse number 2. He is going to bring vengeance upon those who have rejected the God of the Bible. That part is reserved for his second coming. And so when we think about the blood and the gore and all of that that will take place on that great day, you and I do not want to be on the side of the wrath of God. That is why if you're here this morning, my friend, and there's never been a time in your life when you've called out to the Lord and asked him to save you from your sins, please do that today. As Jonathan Edwards many years ago preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I know that's a message today that will get me canceled. It'll probably get the sermon kicked off YouTube one day. But God is a God of love, but he also is a God of justice. And you don't want to be on the side of the justice of Almighty God. Verse number five, if you look at our text, it continues. Paul says, or sorry, Isaiah says, and I looked and there was none to help. Who's speaking here? We believe this is God. I looked, there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. The word wondered there means to be appalled. It means to be astounded. And why is God astounded? Why is Jesus astounded here? Because no one would step in and help the Jewish people. Even today, the Jews are marginalized, right? There's, the United States says we're a friend of Israel, but there's not many, many, not many allies that Israel has. And God is astounded that no one else will step in and help the Jews. And so Jesus, he goes to Basra, he goes to Petra, he gathers his people together, and he marches them up, he rescues them himself. In verse number 6, it says that God will make them drunk in my fury. In other words, those who experience the wrath of God will stagger and fall as if they are drunk. Verse number 6 says, and I will bring them down, I will bring down their strength to the earth. The word strength there is that same Hebrew word for blood. So God is saying there that their blood is going to be absorbed by the ground. Oh, my friend, Jesus is going to return one day. When the roll is called up yonder, will you be there? I, I pray that you will be. None of us here in this room should want to experience the wrath of God. You say, do you believe that to be true? I do, because the Bible says so. 
And my warning to you today is flee from the wrath of God. Turn to Jesus Christ. In verses 7 through 10, we're going to see that Israel is going to follow, fall away, or they fell away. Verse number 7, Isaiah says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed upon us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed upon them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. Now, who, who is speaking here? Possibly Isaiah, possibly Israel. But verse number 7 says that I will make mention. That means to remember, to recall, to mind. Now, I want you to keep these di distinctions clear here. Sometimes in this passage, we can get so focused on the word wrath that we forget the reason that God's wrath is real is because these people are hurting his children. God's wrath is aimed at his enemies. And Part of the motivation for his wrath is his love for his people. That's verse number 7. And so you have in verses 1 through 6 the fury of God, but then you're reminded in verse number 7 uh, how much God loves his people. Verse number 8, for he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. God is talking about his people, the children of Israel, how he got them out of the land of Egypt. And you can expect them to be, God has this idea that he expects them to be honest with him, not to lie. Look at verse number 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bare them. And he carried them all the days of old. My friend, God cares for you. He's talking about how his people, the children of Israel, were coming out of Exodus in Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness. And God says, I feel your pain. Jesus knows what you are going through. Remember what Jesus said? He said, come unto me, all ye that we are weary and heavy laden, that are borne down with a heavy load, and I will give you rest. Jesus knows the pain that you are going through. He cares about you and your affliction. That's why we're invited with the Apostle Peter to cast all of our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. And so you have a passage of Scripture that talks about the real wrath of God. But on the other hand, you have the same passage of Scripture that talks about God's loving kindness and God's prayer and his desire for Israel to come back to him. And my friend, because of what Jesus Christ has done, the, the world, the, the salvation has been opened up to the Gentiles, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This morning, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? In verses 11 through 14, the Bible says that God, Israel, is going to return to the Lord. It mentions how Israel is going to come back. Verse number 11 says, then he remembered the days of old. He refers to Israel. So, in verse 11... Israel is going to remember what God has done for them. And then in verse 15 through chapter 64 of verse number 12. So all of chapter 64, you have a prayer of God's people wanting him to come back. If you ever not have an opportunity to go with us to the land of Israel, one of the places you're going to be able to go to is the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. And the reason why the Jewish people from all around the world flock to the Western Wall is because that is the closest that religious Jews are allowed to get to the Temple Mount. You see, right now, where Abraham, I'm sorry, where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, um, they, later on, David collected all the materials, and Solomon built an amazing temple on that spot. And that temple was torn down by armies by Babylon. It was rebuilt later by King Herod, Herod's temple, but it was finally torn down in 70 A.D., 
And that what remains of the temple today, where the, Jew, the most holy spot for all of Judaism, is just a retaining wall. And that retaining wall on the outside of the city of Jerusalem is the closest that the Jews are allowed to go because the Muslims control the top of that mount. They, they control the, the, where the Dome of the Rock is right over that place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. So right now, the people of God, God's chosen people, are not allowed to go onto the Temple Mount, but there is coming a day that they will return. But if you go to Israel with us and you go to the Western Wailing Wall, you'll see cracks in the retaining wall where in between the different rocks. And what people will do is they will write prayers, Isaiah 63, Isaiah 64, other passages from the Psalms, and they'll write them on a little piece of paper. They'll fold that piece of paper up, kind of like a little mini cigarette almost. They'll roll it up and then they'll fold it in half and they'll pinch it and they'll put it inside one of the cracks on the Western Wall. And many times what they are writing and what they are praying is Isaiah 63 verses 15 through the end of the chapter in all of chapter 64. They are praying that God will return. It, look, God says here in this passage, I'm going to summarize it here for sake of time this morning. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were to forsake the nation of Israel, God won't forsake the nation. That's why David wrote in Psalm 27:10, When my mother, my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Beloved, God will never let you down. I know right away, right away some of you are you're thinking, well, but Pastor, God has let me down. No, He has not. You may not like all that God has done in your life, but that doesn't mean that it's bad and that God has let you down. I think it's interesting in this passage of Scripture that God many times refers to Himself as the Father and we are His children. You know why God calls us children? Because sometimes we act like children. There are times when I know that I make an unpopular decision, right? And I got a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old right now in our house, and they're thinkers, and they don't like the decisions that mom and dad make sometimes. And they're very adamant that they don't like those decisions. Why? Because they can think through things logically, and they do not agree with the conclusions that we've come up, to, come up with. But regardless whether they agree with them or not, we still are the parents, right? We don't always make the right choices. God always does. And like children, sometimes we get upset and we complain when God allows us to go through difficult trials, but God has not forsaken us. God has not made the wrong choices in your life. He's allowed you to go through them for a reason. In verse number 17, there's a phrase there. It says, return for thy servant's sake, the tribes of thine inheritance. This is a plea for the return of Christ, to return for the sake of the tribes of Israel. Verse number 18, it's very, very interesting. It says, our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. Right now, you go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, it's under the control of the Muslims. But there's coming a day when Jesus Christ returns, that that Temple Mount is going to be restored once again. And no longer will it be the epicenter for the faith of the Jews. It will be the epicenter for those that believe in Jesus Christ. The Messiah will be worshipped from around the world. The religions of the world, they control different parts of Jerusalem right now. In fact, if you go to one of the churches there right outside of the, the, right outside of the city walls, or inside of the city walls, the church of the, where the, the, they believe the crucifixion took place, the Orthodox Church opens the doors, the Catholic Church closes the doors at night, and, and then the Muslims are the caretakers for the entire building. I mean, it's kind of amazing the system that they have set up there in certain parts of Jerusalem. But my friend, when Jesus returns... It will be a glorious day, but also, verses 1 through 6, it will be a day of judgment for others. 
Can I bring your attention back to verse number 11 for a minute? It says there in verse 11, Then he remembered the days of old. You say, this morning, I am so far from God. Okay, I understand that. I've been there before in my life. The first step to coming back to God is remembering. The people of Israel had known the loving kindness of God. They had seen Him rescue them in the past, but they had turned their back on Him. And they had begun to show in, in some difficult times that they had cracks in their armor and they found themselves fighting against the God who rescued them. But what the Bible says here is if you want to return back to God, it takes a heart to look back and know how it used to be and ask God for help. Sometimes we act like kids and we don't want to ask God for help. But God says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a church in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus, had an amazing start. The, the founding pastor of the church was none other than the Apostle Paul himself. If Paul had started Faithway and spent three years in Leesburg, man, our church would be doing a whole lot better than it was with my wife and I starting it, all right? It would be doing tremendous, I guarantee you that. Paul spent the longest place in his ministry, we believe, is at Ephesus. And God used Ephesus as a base of operations to reach all of Asia Minor. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 19, we won't go to there this morning for sake of time, but the church at Ephesus was a powerhouse for missions. But after 30 years, the passion in that church had begun to die out. For whatever reason, the people had lost their passion for God and the zeal that they once had when they first got saved was no longer there. In fact, they had lost their passion so much that Jesus wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus through the apostle John. And he said, church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, he said, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not has found them liars. In other words, verse 2, you're great at your Bible doctrines. You know the Bible. Verse 3, and hast borne and had patience, and for my name's sake, hast labored and not fainted. You're working in the nursery. You're cleaning the church. You're serving God. You're preaching the gospel. You're doing an amazing job, church at Ephesus. But nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. I got a problem with you. Why? Because thou hast left thy first love. Nevertheless, God says here, if you've left your first love, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Remember, where you came from, repent, do your first works, or else I will come to thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. The church at Ephesus had known God to do a great thing in the past, but they continued to serve God without a true love for Jesus. Maybe that's where you are this morning. And Jesus says the road to home starts with remembering. Was there a time in your life when you were more in love with Jesus than you are now? You know, sometimes we think about the Christian life and we think, well, it's a series of peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys. That's not God's will for your life. God's will for your life is a consistent upward climb. And at the top of the climb is heaven where you see Jesus one day. The closer and closer you get to the top is the closer and closer you get to heaven. That's what God's will for your life is. But perhaps this morning you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death. If that's where you are, perhaps this morning you need to repent. Perhaps you need to turn around and stop doing the things that you know you're doing wrong and turn back to God. Are there things in your life that you stop doing? Like reading your Bible every day? Like spending time in prayer? Like loving, giving, serving, worshiping Jesus? like talking to your friends about the Lord. Do the first works. Get ready 
for the return of King Jesus. If Jesus were to return today, will you be his enemy or his friend? If you say, well, I'm the enemy of God, you don't have to be. Turn to Christ today, repent of your sin, and he'll forgive you. If you say, well, pastor, I think I'm a friend of God. I know I'm a Christian. I, I asked him to save me, and, and he's, he's forgiven me of my sins. I know that. Okay. Then maybe it's time for us to return and do our first works. Because one day we'll see Jesus, and he's going to appear, and we'll be like him. For I pray today that we'll be able to stand before him and not have to hang our head in shame because we spent all of our life in the valley, but we'll serve him faithfully until we see him face to face. That's my prayer for you this morning, if you know Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you today that each and every one of us would evaluate our hearts and see where we stand. As you tell us in the book of Hebrews, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And I pray that no one here today under the sound of my voice or maybe someone who's watching online this morning would have to stand before you as the judge that judges sin. Because, Lord, that will be a dreadful day. I pray that all of us this morning would know the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we've tasted of that forgiveness, oh Lord, help us to remember what it was like back when, when we first were saved. Lord, may we return to our first love and help us to continue with those works, serving you, spending time in your word, spending time in prayer, telling people about Jesus. Lord, the basics, but that's what you've called us to do. I pray, Lord, that we would remember all that you've done. This is Pastor Barney Schwenke from Faithway Baptist Church in Leesburg, Virginia. Thank you so much for taking the time today to listen to the sermon podcast. If there's any way that we can help you in your journey with God, please reach out to us. You can find more information on how to contact us at our website, faithwaybaptistchurch.com. May God continue to bless you as you seek to walk with